I got the words, I got the tune. I've been rehearsing under the moon, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. I got the place, I got the time. I got a lot of love words that rhyme, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. And welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will begin talking about Shirley Jackson's A Haunting of Hill House. So this uh, novel was published in 1959. It's probably her most well-known work outside of the lottery. Um, I think most people read the lottery at some point in a lit class um, because it's such a great story and... uh, you know, kind of so famous, uh, not only in her career, but just in American literature in general, certainly influenced a lot of, of other works over time. Um, now, The Haunting of Hill House, also, also very, very influential in literature. Um, it's, it's a classic uh, haunted house story, but more than that, it's, a, it's an evil house story. And I, I think um, the way Stephen King talked about this in Dance Macabre, I think he, he focuses on this novel. There certainly was a big, big influence on him. Uh, you see it, it's the epigraph of, of uh, To Salem's Lot, uh, which of course deals with an evil house, right? And, um, and King makes the distinction between to a normal house that's just haunted, that has a presence, and a house itself that's evil. And then the question is, does, does the evil house draw the, these forces? Is, is just the house being evil itself enough to account for the occurrences that happen or not? But he, he thinks it's a big distinction, um, and I agree with him. I think this is definitely an evil house story. The haunting, then, what's the haunting? Well, uh, I guess you can take this a couple ways. One is just a, you know, got like a haunted house, so it seems to be a haunted house, even though I'd say it's more of an evil house. That's how most people probably will read this title. Um, but you could also say this is more how it gets perceived as, haunted right when people are in this house they they're looking for ghosts the characters are kind of on a search for ghosts uh but i think another way we can read the haunting of hill house the title is that it's these four characters who intrude on this house and and begin to haunt it for the duration of of the novel and of course at least one character will haunt this house for for eternity right that's uh, that's where the story goes now, in this episode, I'll talk about the first half, the first four chapters. The novel itself is nine chapters. It's, it's quite short. The audiobook, uh, which there's a nice one on YouTube. I don't know if it's there legally or not, so it might not be there definitely, but it's there now. Uh, it's a very well-read uh, uh, audiobook by, by David Warner. It's, uh, and he was famous in Star Trek, I believe, for being the, the Cardassian who... Or playing the Cardassian who interrogates Picard in that wonderful two-part episode, Chain of Command. It was a really good reading, and I think there's a different, couple of different versions of that. One's a little bit more high quality. They're both on YouTube and, and can be accessible. So um, check it out. It, it's it's really it's really worth reading. I, I I'd probably say if you had to pick though, the lottery is is just the stories are so great. I you, I wouldn't want to miss. You wouldn't want to miss that opportunity, but The Haunting of Hill House and her other novel that we'll look at after this, We've Always Lived in the Castle, are also quite good. Now, The Haunting of Hill House begins with this wonderful uh, opening sentence, uh, a few open, uh, like a, up an opening paragraph. Um, 
the opening sentence itself is, is pretty impressive and, and can be read a lot of different ways. Um, but I'll read the first whole paragraph if you haven't heard it yet. It's, it's a doozy. Um, they even use it in the TV series in the opening scenes of the TV series, which I only got through one episode of. I, I'll go back and watch it at some point, I suppose. But this is it. Uh, no live organism can continue to exist. Sorry, I'll try again. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and cadids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within it. It had stood so for 80 years, it might stand for 80 more. Within walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. So we're introduced first to the house, and the house is, we're told, is not sane. So again, it's not so much that the house is haunted. The house has certain characteristics. Um, in a sense, it's, it's an evil house, right? Um, but this very um, enigmatic opening um, um, sentence, no live organism continued for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. So Hill House, and then, she, then Shirley Jackson talks about Hill House. So Hill House is a live organism. It seems that's the implication here. And it's living under conditions of absolute reality, hence its lack of sanity. It seems to be uh, what we have here. Um, so anyways, I, th I think this will take a lot of thought to kind of uh, unpack and, and maybe we'll come back to this at the end of the novel and see if we can give it some, some clear meaning. Um, but anyways, uh, we are introduced first to the house and then pretty much immediately, the very next paragraph, we're introduced to John Montague. Uh, he is a scientist who is interested in the supernatural, and he's uh, that kind of archetype of an academic who who wants to is curious about or wants to explore supernatural elements in the world, and and kind of suffers in his career for doing that. That's a, a pretty standard archetype. I don't know if Shirley Jackson invented it. Probably not, but um, we we've certainly seen it a lot, right? And everything from uh, well, like Ghostbusters, for instance, you have that kind of. Um, uh, figure, even though it's a very, very different type of work. Um, and we, we were told that he wants to rent Hill House in order to understand haunted houses for scientific study. So he's trying to do hard scientific research into Hill House. And this is a house that has some history. The people nearby know about it, right? So we got the, you know, these haunted houses or these evil houses tend to have local histories. That's another motif we see. Again, Stephen King uses this in so many works. It's in, it's in The Shining, of course. Um, and the, like the relationship between the history of a place and it's it's evil. I mean, that's something he really developed a lot. It's one of his clear motifs. You have it in Salem's Lot. You have it in It. To to uh, certainly with the house on Niebold Street. There. Now, not talking so much about him. I don't, I don't want to jump back to him, but it'll be hard to resist. But remember, even Shirley Jackson liked to talk about the very intimate relationship between people and their houses, and that comes up a lot in the lottery, right? So a place having a history, whether it's for an individual or, you know, this kind of goes a little bit farther and gives the house itself a history and makes the house a character, not just something that's intimately connected to an individual, right? And then this novel will be Eleanor Vance and the house who have the closest and most intense relationship. So anyways, uh, back to Montague. Montague is a scientist who's trying to explore this house. 
He hires assistants to help him on this research, and he picks people who have who have some association with the paranormal. And the way he chooses them is he basically identifies people who have some relationship with the paranormal. One, you know, whether they were in a study and they showed some abnormal results, or there's some kind of individual history with them. He wants some people who are sensitive to the paranormal, paranormal, so they'll be able to experience these things. Um, and we learn that the house was associated with strange events, but we don't get the history of those events till later in the novel. Um, now, only two people of, I think he writes about a dozen, only two write back and show up for the study. And these two are Eleanor Vance. She's 32 years old, um, uh, aging spinster. Uh, you know, 32 is not old, but she's getting that age at that time, right? If you weren't married by 32, it was, it was a bit abnormal. Uh, for, for most women would have been married by that point. So Eleanor Vance is, she's a loner. Uh, she didn't have much time to make friends as a child. Very, very socially awkward. Um, something we see in her, the way she interacts with the characters in the novel itself. Um, when she was 12, she experienced a paranormal event in the form of unexplained falling stones. Uh, again, back to Stephen King, this is something he does in his first novel, Carrie. Um, of course, in that case, it's clearly psychokinesis. Uh, here, there's just these unexplained falling stones, and she was near that, and, and for that reason, Montague thinks that she has some special relationship with the paranormal. And her interest in Hill House is mostly in part to confront her childhood experiences, and mostly her experiences of her mother. Um, and over time, she also develops this sort of sexual curiosity with Dr. Montague, um, which, uh, I mean, she kind of has that sort of initially, too. The second woman who comes is Theodora. She's identified by having paranormal powers, you know, in the press as having some ESP ability because they're very good results on a, like a test she did. So basically she took the invitation more out of fun to just to enjoy some time away from her ongoing conflicts with her roommate. She's more of a curious person. She doesn't have this uh, drive to it. And, and we see how the, the, the difficulty Eleanor has in even getting into Hill House and the steps she takes, the really radical steps she takes, just show my, shows how much that pull is. Uh, so we have three people who are the core study. And then we have another guy, Luke Sanderson, who's coming there. And he's described as a bit of a, a scammer, a bit of a suspicious person. He's from a He's from the family that owns Hill House, so he's kind of, he's the heir. He's essentially going to get Hill House, but, you know, no one really lives there and stays for very long. So he knows it's not going to be, like, a great benefit for him, but he's still, he's, like, there just, that was the condition of renting Hill House, is that someone who's associated with the house will be there as well. So this character is Luke Sanderson. So these are our four characters that we need to know uh, to to follow this novel. There's also going to be some historical figures here, but the heart of it is these, these four people. And Hill House, the fifth character is, of course, the house itself. So much of the rest of chapter one is dealing with Eleanor uh, trying to get to Hill House. And the way she does it is she basically says, I'm taking the car from her sister. And and they're sharing this car and she's taking it. And that's kind of a big deal to just take a car for an unknown period of time to to some strange house. And Carrie, you know, doesn't want her to do this. She thinks it's weird. Um, but she also resists uh, to taking out the car. She's kind of wants to stand in the way and eventually Eleanor needs to steal the car. 
Anyways, as she's driving, we get a lot of background information about Eleanor, especially she ponders a lot about her past, and she starts to see the road, as many of us probably do, as a metaphor for various choices that we take in life. It's, it's a common enough metaphor. It's something people think, uh, I think, often as they're walking or, or strolling around or by themselves, you know, could I have done different things in my life? Um, you know, common in Shirley Jackson's uh, characters. If you remember the story of Elizabeth, I think that's a really good example of that same types of um, internal monologue. Um, she has various fantasies about what possible lives she may have had. But basically she follows the directions that Montague gave her, which are pretty com complex because this real horse is way out there and there's all these instructions about how, you know, the people there won't, you know, won't give you help or don't want you going there. You know, they're very suspicious about anyone wanting to go be in that house. Um, but she, you know, mostly she's thinking about the options in her life. She stops for lunch and she watches the family engage in some banter over a little girl's cup, which is called the Cup of Stars. And Eleanor imagines herself as an advocate for the little girl. Now, later on, she's on the road and she continues her exercise of imagining possible lives for herself in different houses. She finally stops in Hillsdale, which is where Hill House um, dwells, although Hill House is a bit on the outskirts of town. And despite Montague's instructions, which to go straight to Hill House, she stops in the town and she talks with people at the coffee shop, hinting to them about Hill House and trying to get a little bit of information about it. She goes on finally to Hill House following the instructions and she thinks about how her sister will respond to the theft of the car and she begins to have serious doubts about her mission and why she's here. And then she meets Dudley. Dudley and Dudley's wife are two kind of side characters in The Haunting of Hill House. They're actually quite humorous characters. They're the caretakers of Hill House. They're the ones hired to care for it. And they know the house is, is creepy and weird. And they to, to deal with that, they run everything in a very, very systematic and orderly way. Like lunch is going to be at this time. Breakfast is going to be at this time. Uh, there's one funny line at one point where the question is like, where do these, someone asks, where do these plates belong? And Dudley says they belong, you know, in the, in the cabinet. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, or to who, to, or to who do these, this silverware belong or these dishes belong? She says it belongs to the cabinet, right? Um, so that's how she, that, that's how Dudley and Dudley's wife handle interacting with Hill House. Um, but she's the first to have arrived of this group. She thinks about escaping after seeing the house and determines in her mind that it is quite vile. Uh, now, her relationship with Hill House is the core of the novel, of course. But uh, at this point, she's, her initial impression is, impression is not that good. Um, so there's actually quite a lot going on in Chapter 1, especially with Eleanor's character, her desires and her ambitions. Um, but really, she's obsessed with options and alternatives and choices. Um, but despite all this, despite all her thinking about options, she stays on the path of Hill House. So we get this sense of inevitability in this path towards Hill House. Um, you know, why, if she has, she's thinking so much about other options, why does she continue to go to Hill House? Even when she finds it distasteful, when she first gets there, she decides to pursue this anyways. Um, there's a lot those interesting interactions she has with the people at the, at the restaurant, people in Hillsdale, also... You know, I, I just think they're kind of fascinating to um, her, you know, ex well, you see her social awkwardness, you see her kind of weirdness, you see her, also her, a bit of a, the curiosity she has about, about Hill House. Um, we also learn quite a lot about 
how her mother shaped her psychology, and especially how Carrie did. Um, and I think this is also where we get our first description of Hill House. We got the initial description, which is really philosophical almost, by Shirley Jackson. And then we get uh, Eleanor's descriptions of Hill House later on. Um, and, you know, it's really curious why it bothers her so much, why this Hill House is such a, um, you know, something's wrong about it in her mind. It's not really definable, right? There's a lot that goes on in this novel that's really, really difficult to define and, and pin down. It's like you can't say, oh, this is the ghost of so-and-so who hung themselves, even though people did hang themselves in Hill House. It's, it's, it's hard to grasp, and something I think Shirley Jackson is very, very good at um, doing. Even in the lottery, she has a lot of these um, very, very under-the-surface anxieties and creepiness of things, right? Like uh, in so many stories in the lottery, you have a person who's off and acts weird and it's, it's hard to maybe precisely say why that's weird. It just doesn't kind of fit what people expect. So as chapter two begins, we're given Shirley Jackson's F attempt to try to identify or describe an evil house. And this is how the chapter begins. Uh, no human eye can isolate the unhappy coincidence of lying in place, which is just evil in the face of a house. And yet somehow a manic juxtaposition, a badly turned angle, some chance meeting of roof and sky turned Hill House into a place of despair, more frightening because the face of Hill House seemed awake with a watchfulness from the blank window and a touch of glee in the eyebrow of a cornice. Almost any house caught unexpectedly or at an odd angle can turn a deep humorous look on a watchful person. Even a mischievous little chimney or a dormer like a dimple can catch up a, a beholder with a sense of fellowship, but a house arrogant and hating, never off ground, can only be evil. This house, which seems somehow to have formed itself flying together into its own powerful patterns under the hands of its builders, fitting itself into its own construction of lines and angles, reared its great head back against the sky without concession to humanity. It was a house without kindness, never meant to be lived in, nor a place fit for people or for the love or for hope. Exorcism cannot alter the continents of a house. Hill House would stay as it was until it was destroyed. So, yeah, she just comes out and says it in this passage opening in chapter 2 that we're dealing with an evil house. It's not a traditional haunting. It's not a ghost. It's the whole house is, is evil from the construction, from the, the literal architecture of it is wrong. You know? And the suggestion here is even that the workers who built the house were forced by the house to make it that way. Right? It was it, at its very root um, evil. That's why exorcism won't work. An exorcism gets rid of a demon gets rid of a ghost, something like that. That can't happen here because it's the house itself that is evil. Very, very important um, thing. And this is obviously what Eleanor perceives. This is right after Eleanor, in the end of chapter one, has this odd reaction to Hill House. She, um, you know, we immediately get this description of, this, of the evil house and how this house was evil at its, at its root. Um, and Eleanor basically decides she should not have come come inside come to the house or come inside the house but uh so she finds a she does eventually find a place to park though and enters the house meeting mrs dudley this time she met dudley outside the house and in this chapter she meets mrs dudley and she begins to associate the dudleys with hill house itself and i think this is this makes some sense they're the caretakers they're they have the most intimate relationship to hill house luke it might be the owner the heir but he's basically fairly aloof from it um, Mrs. Dudley warns Eleanor that no one will come to help her at night, basically telling her you shouldn't want to be here either, um, that we don't stay here at night, you shouldn't either, and that no one at night will come to help her if they're having problems, which is when they're probably going to have problems. 
And she explains that she herself will leave every day before dark. And she has a very, very strict schedule, which seems to be mostly to protect herself from the things she knows this house does. Um, Eleanor eventually settles down in the blue room. I mean, this house is described as very, very complicated, and you never quite know exactly where you are. Uh, it's eventually, you get the architecture of the house is like two like concentric circles. Like you have a, a center room and then two, uh, an outer ring and an inner ring. That's how it's described. But um, you know, it's, it's people kind of get lost, and it's it's it seems rooms aren't the right place, or or seem oddly positioned, or when you need to move around, things don't quite seem right. I'm going to say they're moving around or anything. It's just we don't really get a good sense of where we are at any one point. We just get this kind of general description of the of the house. But uh, the rooms are distinctive and they're, they're, they're identifiably separate. And she shows down in what she calls the blue room. And the room has a very, very bizarre design flaw that makes the corners difficult to look at. And I think this is something that Montague later on identifies that though like the angles aren't quite 90 degrees. It's, it's kind of Lovecraftian, non-Euclidean geometry or something. Um, it's, it's hard to identify exactly what's wrong with it. It just is a bit off. Um, she begins to unpack, assuming that she will not stay long. She's already feeling a bit off about the room. Now, eventually she'll stay forever, but uh, that's, um, that's getting to the conclusion of the novel. Now, not long after Theodora arrives, Eleanor is, is pretty relieved that someone else has finally come to the house. Mrs. Dudley gives Theodora the very same speech, almost word for word, that she gave to Eleanor about the schedule, the time, how she won't, they won't get out from the city, the town at night, and kind of the subtle warning not to stay there. They talk about their mutual dislike of the house. I mean, Eleanor and Theodora talk about their mutual dislike of the house, and Theodora compares it to a boarding uh, house she stayed at once. She's, she's a little more tongue-in-cheek about it. Eleanor's a little bit more serious about the dislike. Theodore just says, I've been in weird houses like this before. Um, Theodore talks Eleanor into leaving and exploring the grounds. Both want, don't want to stay inside the house too long, so they're both driven to go outside and explore the grounds. They joke around a bit, and it's kind of nice, and there's certainly some homosocial um, elements to this, to the character of Theodore and her relationship to Eleanor. Um, that's kind of the most well-developed relationship in the novel. Uh, and it's a nice, there's some nice moments here as they joke around a bit. Um, and they joke around about Mrs. Dugley and, and how weird Montague is, because they only talk to Montague really through the letters. Outside, they joke a bit more, especially its old-fashioned look, and they laugh about the entire situation they are in. They go to a little pond and play childish games, including Theodora turning Eleanor into a make-believe cousin, kind of like a blood brothers, blood sisters kind of uh, silly little game. And then they're spooked. They're spooked not by a ghost or anything, but by a rabbit moving and return to the house. Um, so we, um, so this chapter introduces the evil house. It introduces Miss Dudley and it introduces Theodora. Um, Theodora, of course, a major character in this in this story. Um, now we commonly see it. Uh, people pointing out the freedom and openness of Theodora compared to the more closed and and in internally minded uh, Eleanor. Uh, many probably rightfully suggested that she's a lesbian. I mean, there's no straight up evidence about that, but this, there is the, the very strong suggestion of lesbianism in the character of Theodora. Not so much Eleanor, uh, but there is a homosocial, certainly close sisterhood kind of relationship between Theodora and, 
and, and Eleanor. Um, so, you know, Theodore's comments that she is cousins with Eleanor will come up later on in the story, of course. So it's a, it's a nice chapter, but I think the, the core here is the house is evil. It's kind of indescribably wrong. And, and Eleanor and Theodore, are almost immediately as they get there, they want to leave and they want to go somewhere else. So that's uh, chapter two. All right, then, chapter three. So in chapter three, they meet Luke Sanderson uh, when they get back into the house. And he's giving some kind of strange incantation over the house, kind of in jest. Uh, and then Montague meets his party. They go through a lot of formal kind of rituals here, including toasting for the success of the experiment. And then he begins to explain what they will be doing working there. And basically their job is to live there and to take careful notes uh, for the, you know, what they experience. That's the main thing. Eleanor starts to come to a deeper realization of her situation and that she's being sort of drawn to this house and this house has some special relationship with her. They introduce themselves to each other in a really rather playful way. It's really fun to read. They, these, they're a bit happy-go-lucky considering the circumstances. A lot of brandy is drunk throughout this novel. A lot of cards are played. Uh, Luke's a little bit more tongue-in-cheek and, and Theodora is. Um, but it, it's a rather, it's a really kind of fun part of the novel when they uh, have this very casual conversation. Um, Montague establishes that the parlor will be their base of their operations, and that's like in the center of the house. And he starts to show them around a little bit, but he really doesn't tell them any details of the history of the house until the very next day. Um, now, they also agree on the strange behavior of the Dudleys. Um, and Dudley wants his partners to experience the house as... I mean, Montague wants his partners to experience the house kind of as cleanly as possible without having a lot of early knowledge about the history, which he knows he had, he does know the history of the house a little bit more. So he wants to keep the experiments as scientific as possible as well, because he does want to publish these results. And he wants these results to be respected in the, you know, the overall academic um, community. He, they, though, they insist on hearing about Hill House from Montague, and eventually he does surrender. And he, he gives in to this and begins telling some of the stories of, of the past of the house. He starts with the idea that Hill House was, like many other houses, he believes, born bad. And this is something established already in Chapter 2 by our narrator, that there just was something objectively wrong with the house from the beginning. Um, whether, you know, it's just... It's not even like you know, a place, it's just has always had this kind of evil intent to to be there, right? Um, and and again, he kind of has the idea of an evil house instead of a haunted house so much. And he also differentiates between a haunted house and an evil house, just like the narrator does. So Montague is kind of laying on some confirmation about this. At least that's his feeling about Hill House. They discuss the failure of the scientific community to accept the possibility of such places. And Montague, of course, is trying to buck that scientific con convention. Uh, but the history shows that no one has been able to stay in the house for more than a few days. People who have rented it to, 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 to work there or to, to live there have found some excuse to leave very, very quickly. The local people do know more about the history of the house and the nature of the house as well, uh, which is one reason they don't really want to talk about it or be too connected to it. Montague explains that he chose 
the two ladies to be a part of this experiment and a little bit why. So some, again, stuff we already know, but he goes in a little bit more detail about what these two ladies have experienced and why they're key to his, exper um, his experiment. They push him for what he thinks is in the house, and we learn a little bit more of its history, including that Hugh Crane was the original builder of the house 80 years prior, so this would have been, assuming this is set in 1959 when the novel was written, so the 1880s or so, 1870s. Hugh Crane was the original builder of the house, and tragedies took place almost at once on the house. Crane's wife died before stepping inside the house. His second daughter also died in the house. After Crane died, the house was left to his two daughters who fought over it. Deaths are associated with Hill House, but again, as everyone knows, most houses have deaths, right? People, especially in the past, didn't always die in hospitals. They often died in their house. And, you know, any house you buy, there's a good chance that someone died there, right? Doesn't make it haunted or whatever. But it's just death is particularly associated with, with Hill House, both in common popular history and it's apparently in the, in the actual history of the house. Um, now, in this case, the younger sister killed herself after being tormented by gossip and legal troubles over the ownership of the house. The house then passes on to the Sanderson family, and that's uh, our brief survey of the history of the house. Uh, Montague ends his story with, with this. It's pretty slight, and we're going to learn more about the history of the house later in the novel. Eleanor insists that, to herself that she will survive this encounter, and she already sees it and experiences it differently than other people. Um, and Theodore is there more for curiosity. Sanderson's there kind of it's his job, and he you know, tries to make a time of it. Montague's there for scientific research, but Eleanor's there for a much more deeper personal reason. Um, now, one thing that happens a lot in this is a lot of brandy's drunk, a lot of games are played, and they do discuss playing the card game bridge or chess or things like this because essentially they're there just to observe and, and spend time. And so they're prepared to do that through, through games and brandy. The doctor, though, insists, actually insists on these games because this is going to help keep the group calm. But getting a little bit drunk, uh, through too much wine and brandy being drunk, the doctor loosens his tongue about some of his deeper feelings and fears. Eleanor and Theodore also talk to each other with some intimacy while the doctor and, and Luke uh, tend to uh, speak with each other. Um, they're the ones playing chess, right? And they also, uh, Eleanor talks a little bit about caring for her mother, her situation in her house, and, and they also talk about their future plans. When the chess game is done, Luke and the doctor join the women. Montague jokes that he can read to anyone who has trouble sleeping. He says, you know, I'm, if anyone can't sleep in this house, I can read to you. And he brought books to help him sleep. Uh, and they say their good nights, preparing for their first night in Hill House. Uh, Eleanor sleeps with her door locked. Meanwhile, Mrs. Dudley, is one of the last things we see in this chapter, is thinking of Hill House itself. Uh, Miss Dudley is actually six miles away back in the village. This is the final line of the chapter. Six miles away, Mrs. Dudley awakened, looking at her clock, thought of Hill House and shut her eyes quickly. Mrs. Gloria Sanderson, who owned Hill House and lived 300 miles away from it, closed her detective story, yawned, and reached up to turn off her light, wondering briefly if she had remembered to put the chain on the front door. Theodore's friends slept, as did the doctor's wife and Eleanor's sister. Far away in the trees over Hill House, an owl cried, and toward morning, a thin, fine rain began misty and dull. So we get this survey of other people who are attached to Hill House having some kind of premonition or feeling about it. And Mrs. Dudley 
you know, pondering. She's probably on her mind all the time. But uh, even Mrs. Sanderson has anxiety over her own front door. Uh, that has seems something to do with the fact that someone is there. So in this chapter, we really get a, a very nice introduction to the history itself of Hill House um, and all the, the, the important deaths and the important people, the chain of ownership of the house. Uh, and we also get what their job is. We find that they spend most of their, much of their time, and in fact, much of the novel is spent talking and drinking. Um, there's not actually so much that actually happens in this, except they experience things. Um, um, I think it's, a, I, again, another really important dis, uh, distinction in this novel, and it's been repeated a few times already in the novel, is the difference between a haunted house and an evil house. And it's talked about explicitly here. And then um, there's all this little evidence of the house's sickness um, in, um, throughout this, this chapter. Uh, then chapter four. Um, so we're already... How far into this novel? Already over a, like a third of the way through this novel, um, and everyone has just arrived and has begun begun their job, right? So in chapter four, um, it's the next morning. Eleanor has had a good night's sleep and worries that the others will see her as as a stupid woman um, for her behavior there, and 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 she has her, her she's socially awkward. She's she's your typical Shirley Jackson kind of heroine. Uh, we've seen a lot of these in the lottery and other stories. Uh, just very socially awkward and, and, and anxious all the time, anxious about impressions that she makes on others and all that. And she kind of goes through those, those motions as well. Theodore impatiently asks her to come down for, for breakfast. Um, Eleanor, meanwhile, is very impressed with Theodore's freedom and openness and overall joy, especially in this situation. Uh, it takes them a while to find the, like the, where they're going to eat breakfast. And the men are already there having breakfast. The doctor reports that the door closed on its own. So there's this, uh, just as they were coming down, the door closed on its own. So it's one of our first really clear supernatural events. Um, the night, though, was mostly uneventful. But Theodora apparently did shout out at one point, and other people were able to report it. They agree that the best way to go about this on that day is to explore the house first, to know the way around, and to have a plan. And they also begin to plan, have a plan to keep the doors open throughout the house by nailing them literally shut. The doctor reassures them that the house is not a maze. Uh, he shows kind of the, the outline of the house and the construction of it, and we get like a floor plan. And it is kind of these two concentric circles. Um, so the doctor is assures them it's not, but it's, I still get the feeling a lot that it does kind of come off as a bit mazy. A lot of times characters get kind of... Uh, turned around or not quite sure where they are, even though the rooms are very, very distinctive. Um, it is kind of funny that a lot of the rooms in this Hill House have the names of the Clue board game. I, I believe the board game Clue was already around in 58. So we have like a conservatory and a library and a, a study. These are the rooms that, that are in the game of, uh, of Clue, uh, even though this isn't a murder mystery. Um, but the doctor does go through the steps of, of trying to show them that it's a it's an explicable room, uh, house. Mrs. Dudley arrives to provide more orders to the guests. And a lot of what she does is, she, I mean, her main job is to provide the food and the meals and things. But she always does everything very orderly and, and uh, with a purpose. And I think, again, that's how she copes with this, this house is by, you know, keeping it, keeping everything 
ship shape. Um, now they go to they go room to room opening doors and windows um, as kind of a baseline so they can keep track of doors that open or close on their own. The doctor then shows them a trap door opening to the library. This was where the younger sister was supposed to have killed herself. The doctor talks about the strange design of the house, which tends to make people confused, but still assists that it's not a maze. Uh, the angels of the house are the angles of the house are off in many strange ways. This is something that uh, Eleanor noticed early on in the story. Another strange thing is that a statue seems to look different to different observers. They describe it a little bit differently. Um, Theodore thinks the statue in this library ruins the room. Eleanor notices that things move when people aren't looking at them. As they walk around the house, though, the doors they kept open have now been closed. Theodore assumes that it's been Mrs. Dudley doing this, insisting on her rules for the house, but it's not really, it's kind of ambiguous why those doors that were opened and perfectly opened for, uh, by the guests are now closed. Uh, now during lunch, Theodore tries to talk Eleanor into painting her toenails and generally improving her look. She's a little bit homely, right? This 30-year-old spinster. And Theodore is much more glamorous. She's trying to uh, clean up her cousin and make her a little bit more more sexy, more attractive. Um, and that's a lot of what these these women do, especially early in the novel. Um, again, a lot of this story is just is just friendly banter between these four people. And a lot of it is, is quite fun. Um, but eventually Eleanor gives in and, and has her, her, her toenails painted. And while this is happening, Eleanor is frightened by something. And they experience a chilling draft. Now, the day overall, though, is fairly lazy. They chit-chat and drink, and eventually they retire for the night. The doctor warns Eleanor to leave the house if she feels the house is trying to capture her. Now, this is uh, something that's hinted at by this point, and here the doctor deals with it more explicitly, is that the house is trying to capture people, and particularly Eleanor is the one it seems to be captured, trying to capture, and this is something the doctor seems to be aware of. Or notices so he says you got to protect yourself and the way to do that is just to leave the house if you feel this happening Luke and the doctor play chess again at night now that night we get even more weirder a weirder night than the first night Eleanor and Theodore experience some odd feelings and icy cold drafts and noises at their door these are noises that are later shown that the men could not hear uh, but only they could hear Eleanor debates whether to investigate what they experience in a more scientific way, given that they are kind of on a scientific quest here. Um, Theodore tries to joke about it, though, but their actions begin to disturb the two men. Luke is happy for an excuse to, to, to wander about and get back to work and to drink some more. And the doctor concludes from the closing of the doors that the house is trying to separate the group into, into components, right? God, that classic sneaky uh, haunted house. So this chapter, we get the first full day of their investigation. We get a much more intimate relationship to the geography of the house itself, uh, its weird architectural features, its oddities, its, its various components, its statues, its rooms, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and we also get a closer look at the relationship between Eleanor and Theodora and between Luke and the, and the, and the doctor. So um, the, weird, the big kind of bombshell in this chapter, though, and what really kind of 
takes the novel into another level is that we really start to see very, very clear supernatural experiences happening to the ladies, but not the, the psychically sensitive ladies and not to the men who, who apparently aren't so sensitive. And that's, the, that's chapter four. So that's the first four chapters of The Haunting of Hill House. If you haven't read it, uh, I think it's, it's, it's worth checking out. It's a really fun read. Not, not as joyous, I think, as the lottery and other stories, but still really, really great. Um, so that's that. That's my thoughts on it. Um, but you probably have your own. So if you do, please leave your comments below. You know how to reach me. You can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so yeah, a little bit shorter than I thought it would be, but it's time I had prepared <laughs> written notes, um, which, which is fine. Um, but anyways, in the next episode, I'll look at the second half of The Haunting of Hill House. The novel itself is actually less than 200 pages. It's maybe 180, 190 or so. So, um, yeah, it's a really fast read and, and uh, a really nice one. So I enjoy it a lot. Probably the third time, second or third time I read this novel. So anyways, I'll see you next time with my conclude my the final thoughts about The Haunting of Hill House. Um, and yeah, see you then. What eatin' deatin' 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 I guess it just had to be What eatin' deatin' 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 Won't someone listen to me I got the words, I got the tune I'd like to prune it under the moon But I got nobody to hear my song So I'm comin'